Hey, hockey moms, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Blue Line Hockey Club. And now a word from tonight's sponsor. Wheel, snipe, party! The leader in lifestyle hockey apparel, Gong Show, has just launched their fall 2018 lineup and it is loaded with new styles of buckets, tees, sweaters, and more. Sure to keep you looking like an all-star when you head back to the barn this fall. Gong Show gear is created by hockey players for hockey players, including their hockey legs. Jeans made with more room for hockey players where they need it, so you can finally fit that hockey ass comfortably into a pair of pants. Check them out at www.gongshowgear.com. Gong Show, built in the locker room. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Blue Line Hockey Club, episode 24. We have the usual suspects with us tonight. We have Patrick Uncle Lardy Sullivan. What's up, Patrick? Aloha. And our local nerd on staff, Robbie P. Peters, the IT guy in the house, coming in from Canton, New York. What's up, Robbie? Hey, how you doing? And Derek, all-around sports guru, Derek D-Train, he too. What's up, Derek? How we doing, sweetos? And we have Adam Woody Wood in the house tonight, a local referee in New York for the Division One and AHL and a bunch of other leagues up here with us sitting in on the show tonight. Adam, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me, boys. And your host tonight, Mark the Doctor Morley. Oh, God. Doctor. <laughs> Very special guest with us tonight, Carrie Fraser, the legend. We can uh, wait to hear a little bit from Carrie. Carrie's sitting in with us tonight. Carrie, where are you coming in from today? Uh, I actually, I'm uh, sitting in our new luxury apartment in uh, Marlton, New Jersey. We uh, downsized, sold the big house, empty nest, seven kids gone. Kathy and I were uh, living in three rooms in a big house and uh, an acre and a third that I had to tend to. So, uh, next phase of life, we're uh, we're loving it. Well, congratulations. Seven kids. Wow. You just <laughs> yeah. have a medal for that. I've got my fourth one on the way in any minute now, so I know <laughs> I know how it is. Well, listen, if, if you have to run, you won't have to worry about getting a delay a game call here. <laughs> <laughs> so you're originally from Ontario. Now you're uh, paying high taxes in New Jersey, huh? Well, that's why one of the reasons I sold the big house. I mean... Uh, you don't pay property tax on an apartment. So you get a little golf in down there in Jersey? Yeah, actually, I'm in the golf business with my son-in-law. Uh, we just got back from uh, Firestone Country Club. Uh, we hosted uh, 40 of our uh, high-end uh, country club members uh, at a special outing at Firestone this past weekend. It was fantastic. Three days of golf. Uh, played all three courses there. Had lots of... Uh, Lots of exciting things going on, and uh, next up uh, is going to be uh, a trip to Minnesota to play the uh, three courses in Minnesota, best of Minnesota, including Hazel Team. And so uh, life for Kerry right now is uh, pretty darn good. Nice house of handicap. <laughs> My golf game right now. I, uh, <laughs> I, did, I did the uh, Philadelphia Flyers fantasy camp last weekend, and uh, the hound Bob Kelly uh, contacted me months ago and asked if I'd participate. They had, I believe, 62 uh, campers come from all over North America, big-time Broad Street Bully Flyer fans. And uh, my job was to referee uh, their tournament. They they played a number of games over the course of uh, three days. 
and uh, I didn't realize I was going to be on the ice for 11 hours uh, refereeing these games that tended to get uh, a little more intense as the tournament went on. Uh, but uh, I can still uh, still skate uh, better than I can walk, so uh, <laughs> all was well. Twelve hours. Did you uh, did you use Paul Mitchell Friesen shine for that or? Absolutely. I never never had a hair out of place, and I went retro. All the guys had uh, helmets and visors on. They uh, they saw you know Kerry Fraser uh, uh, throwback uh, to uh, the eighties. <laughs> That's great. A lot of us here we uh, we were watching hockey. You know, um, coming through high schools like in the nineties. So that was some of the prime years for you and your refing career. And you know, we watched a lot of games uh, with Kerry Fraser with the with the stripes on. So. This is a great honor for us to get to talk to you tonight. So Absolutely. We're just gonna get Thanks so much, guys. It's, uh, it's an honor to be with you. And uh, I must tell you, uh, you know, that part of uh, the, the big big part of my job, I always felt, was, was player safety. Uh, you know, enforcement of the rules, and, and the rules are in place uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the rule book expanded from the time I first went to the NHL training camp uh, uh, eons ago. Uh, and uh, it seemed almost like every 10 years uh, we had a change in the game from the Broad Street Bully bench-clearing brawl uh, era of the 70s and then into the 80s with, uh, you know, some stick swinging and, and things of that sort, the fighting that took place, um, and then, uh, of course, the interference and obstruction. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my role within the game as a referee, I always felt was first and foremost to provide uh, player safety uh, and protection for the players from themselves. Nice. Yeah, I, th I think one thing, I, Kerry, one thing I read, I think it was in an article, you know, uh, on your website titled The Zebra. It was a story about you and Theo Fleury, you know, a fight that, well, you know, a potential fight that he had almost gotten in with, uh, with a gentleman out on the ice there and how you had intervened in that. I thought that was just amazing how you handled that situation. Can you talk a little about that? Do you have any kind of relationship still with Theo Fleury? Or? Well, actually, we do. We have a very good relationship. Now, I would have to say, guys, that there were two players that uh, disliked me uh, to the point <laughs> of, I won't say hate because that's an awful strong <laughs> word, uh, but they detested me immensely. One was Theo Fleury and the other was Chris Knuckles Nyland, uh, played for the Montreal Canadiens, New York Rangers, Quebec Nordique, and... Uh, Nux was uh, a 300-plus penalty-minute guy a year. Uh, he stood up for his teammates. He, was, he, was, he got it Well, he got his name, uh, honestly, Knuckles. And uh, uh, same thing with Theo. I mean, he was an angry little guy. Uh, he, he was a very skilled player, uh, highly skilled, intense. Uh, but uh, we know that uh, now that a lot of his anger uh, resulted in, as he wrote in his book, Playing With Fire, uh, he was uh, abused uh, by a predator, a hockey yeah. coach, yeah. in Canada uh, as a 14-year-old, uh, along with some other players that went on to play in the NHL. And uh, So um, my objective with all players was to try to develop a, a positive working relationship. That wasn't easy with guys like Theo and like Knuckles. And it honestly wasn't until after I retired and they retired, and we were doing things for charity together, uh, where we got a chance to travel together, more mature, uh, not as much on the line, uh, the stakes weren't as high, uh, and we got a chance to uh, 
learn a little bit about each other. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'd have to say that uh, I could pick up the phone and, and call Theo if I needed anything, uh, and he could do the same for me. I appear with uh, Knuckles Nyland uh, during the hockey season on TSN 690 uh, out of Montreal every Monday. Uh, we do a uh, Ask the Ref uh, segment uh, with Knux, and uh, we still don't agree very often uh, on the air, uh, but uh, I have to say that uh, we're, we're good friends. On the, the same line, Kerry, uh, I read the same article that, you know, it was titled Zebra. And, you know, one thing that, that struck me, you know, besides the story we just spoke about and I didn't realize was the amount of effort you guys do researching the players that, that you're about to ref. Do you want to just explain a little bit about that routine? And, you know, I, I just assumed sure. the ref showed up and, you know, ref the game and then they leave. But uh, I, I had no idea you guys prepared. Well, at the uh, professional level, certainly, uh, and I think all officials at every level should prepare themselves for whatever level they're working. Uh, They need to be the best they can be. My objective was to be that. Uh, I loved the game. Uh, I didn't want to show up and and, uh, do anything that uh, could negatively impact uh, a game. Uh, I wanted to give the very best, and I, I believed that I owed the best of me to my employer, to the game I loved, and to the the participants in the game. You know, it's an adversarial role, but when I would get to the rink, first thing I would do, and I'd get there at least an hour and a half before game time, I would go to the the press lounge, the media lounge. I'd grab a coffee, I'd get the press notes, and I'd take them back to our dressing room. Uh, I'd get my uh, suit off and underwear on, and before I even started to stretch, (laughs) I'd have the coffee, and uh, and I'd go through the... uh, the notes just to see what had happened in previous meetings uh you know there's so much data that they spill out from uh each team's uh media relations uh, department so i could look and see what the teams had done previous meetings and whether or not there was uh any sort of fisticuff penalty minutes were recorded uh i could look at that i could see who was perhaps on a streak uh and who was maybe in a little bit of a slump somebody that was you know, expected to be a goal scorer. Uh, and with that information, uh, I could uh, not pre-referee the game, but I could be better prepared in the event that, that something might happen. And I'll share a story with you that, that happened in Philadelphia one time. Power forward by the name of Tim Kerr. Timmy Kerr was big, strong. He was a gentleman, wonderful guy. Never, ever said much of anything. He just did his job. He was a 50-plus goal scorer. And in a game uh, at the Spectrum, uh, I did exactly what I told you I do. And I saw that Tim Kerr was in a slump. He hadn't scored in 10 games. For a guy like Tim Kerr, who was a 50-goal scorer, a 10-game drought was almost like a season, a long time. So I went into the game, and there was a play as as Tim Kerr was uh, going uh, towards the net. A cross-ice pass came. He kicked it just at the top of the crease with his skate uh, up towards his stick. Uh, I didn't think he got it with his stick. The puck went directly in the net from my position, my judgment, and I waved the goal off. Now, this Tim Kerr that was such a nice, quiet guy went so lit. <laughs> he was all over me. He Turned into the test. Yes, he went totally out of character. Now, had I not read that he was in a slump, and knowing that this was really a big deal, the fact that a goal potentially 
Tim thought he scored, was disallowed and got him back on track. So I just sort of moved away from him. I didn't give him, I didn't bang him with an unsportsmanlike or a misconduct. Uh, I just got away from him. Well, the very next shift, Tim Kerr came out very quietly. He said, Kerry, listen, I'm really sorry. I want to apologize uh, for, for yelling at you. But uh, he said, I just want you to know that I did tip that puck with my stick just before it entered the net. So my response to him was, Tim, you're an honest man. I have great respect for you. If you said you tipped that puck, you tipped it. And I apologize that I missed it. I hope you get another one soon. Well, it wasn't too much longer after that that he did dent the twine. He got off the snide, scored a goal. But that was the sort of preparation. Another guy may not have recognized and in, in just sort of overreacted and quick-triggered and given Tim Kerr a misconduct when there was a better way. There was a better outcome for that situation, and fortunately, I took it. Kerry, I actually, uh, this is Adam Wood. Uh, you were one of my instructors in the uh, uh, ECAC uh, referee camp maybe five, ten years ago, uh, the one that Paul Stewart runs. You're one of the guest speakers, and I actually remember you talking about that. And uh, since then, it's actually become standard protocol. We all, uh, you know, grab the uh, programs for the games, check it out, uh, whatever league we're in, you know, college or, or up pros a little bit. But uh, I'd like to switch gears with you a little bit now and uh, talk about the NHL and the the consistency, you know, with the with the video replays and the goaltender interference and that sort of thing, and maybe get your thoughts about that. Well, certainly, Woody. I, I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's it's really disappointing for me to watch uh, as you know on the sidelines uh, while I was with TSN uh, for five years uh, after I wrote my book, uh, The Final Call, and and I I was you know on every night during the playoffs, and I've seen some things that uh, in the the evolution uh, and the uh, sort of the the veteran officials that have moved on and retired and the younger guys coming in, there's not a lot of experience out there. Uh, they come in, you know, with relatively minimal experience. They've been incubated in the two referee system since we started it in about 1998. Uh, so anybody that's working at a high level of hockey, you included, uh, would be a part of the two referee, two linesman system. There's a different breed of cat to be a referee. It's a different personality it takes. As we've seen some linesmen, when we went into the two-referee system, wanted to become referees. They weren't cut out for it, and they ended up going back as linesmen. Uh, the duties and the job description are totally uh, and completely opposite. We skate, and we have our distinct duties, uh, but there's really a difference in the, the mindset, the mentality between referees and linesmen. I'm uh, concerned, uh, to say the least, when I see some of the inconsistencies that take place uh, over the course of a game, not just the playoffs, uh, it almost seems like uh, there's a different rule book that's being used in the playoffs. I thought the finals this year, you saw two different uh, pairing of officials, and uh, they worked the games uh, not in, in sort of tandem. Uh, they were inconsistent. Uh, game one, and uh, game three uh, were totally refereed opposite to what games two and four were. Uh, Kelly Sutherland and Chris Rooney did games two and four. They had to come in and clean up some messes. There was a loose standard. Uh, there were some things that happened. My objective uh, in the playoffs 
uh, certainly, was to always leave the series in good shape for the next guy coming in. And then we went into the two referee system, the next pair that came in. Uh, so it's really important, I believe, that players have a fear factor. They have to fear that the referee will call a penalty. That's the best deterrent for them not to commit an infraction. And when the inmates run the prison, when the referees put the whistle away, the, the, the players think they can pretty much do whatever they want. They take it into their own hands. And then the worst thing that can happen is as this whistle is put away and what would have been called earlier in the game is no longer the standard, the worst thing that can happen is the referee all of a sudden pulls a rabbit out of his hat and feels as though he has to call one. Uh, and I've seen that uh, certainly in, in uh, recent years in overtime, uh, in playoff games, uh, that ultimately decided a game or a series uh, as a result of that inconsistent standard. Kerry, w- with you saying that, the um, you know, the referees putting their whistle in their pockets and, you know, the inmates running the prison. Do you think the whole uh, subject of fighting, do you think that will phase out in the NHL or do you think that'll stay for a little while? Well, I think it's a fabric of the game, and but I, I honestly believe that uh, the, the reduction in fighting is significant. Uh, players coming in uh, that, uh, you know, have visors on, uh, if they take their visor off to fight, they're going to get a penalty. Once their helmet is uh, is knocked off, the linesmen are instructed uh, to get in very quickly uh, to break it up, uh, even if they haven't yet hit the ice. Uh, we don't see the kind of, of uh, fisticuffs that you mentioned earlier, uh, certainly in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it was rampant. There were line brawls. Uh, there were bench-clearing bench brawls, brawls uh, yeah. until... Uh, well, until they legislated it out pretty much. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons, main reason, was that we had a TV contract with NBC in the late 70s. And uh, you might remember Tim Ryan was the play-by-play guy. They used Peter Puck to kind of educate the fans. One of the problems was that the games were taking so long with the brawling uh, that they ran into the next segment. They were over three hours long. We've got the games down now. Uh, where there, I would look at uh, a regular season game. If I if I could get it over in two hours and twelve to fifteen minutes, I was happy as a pig. The uh, the good news is that you know you you got lots of speed, lots of go and flow. Uh, players uh, would take their hits and give their hits, and and you know it brings up an interesting point that Woody might uh, buy into. Uh, referee's best friend is a moving puck, and <laughs> when we get into the two referee system. I would say to my young partner beforehand in, in sort of a pregame prep talk, I'd say, listen, if because uh, the last thing I wanted to do was take the game away from the players right off the bat. Have an overreaction on a, on a play, a penalty called, that sort of stifled the flow right off the bat. So I would say to a young uh, ref, listen, if, uh, if there's a good hit, a hard hit, uh, maybe a guy takes a little bit of a long run, as long as he keeps his elbows and the stick down, let's let that sort of play out. Let's not overreact and call a charging penalty or a, you know, a marginal boarding penalty because when that happens, the players, you know, it, that's, that sort of die is cast. The standard is set and it's tight standard that doesn't allow them. Uh, it seems to handcuff them. Whereas on the other hand, 
if you let that puck move and we can get two, three changes on the fly after that first face-off, you've got everybody involved in the game. You've got some energy. You've got some jump. Players will uh, take a check and give a check. And uh, quite often, they don't have time to retaliate because the puck's moving the other way. Once that whistle stops, you see scrums. Uh, you see possibly, uh, you know, some fisticuffs. Uh, so, again, uh, back to my initial statement, best friend of a ref is a moving puck. Terry, did you, admit, did you learn that from your five-cent beer nights in the AHL? <laughs> I got to tell you, back in the old Central Pro League in the 70s, man, I'll tell you, into a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma, or uh, Tucson, uh, I think the team was called the Tucson Six Guns or something, uh, in the old Central Pro League, and nickel beer night, I mean, a guy would be drunk on a buck and a half, and uh, <laughs> he, wouldn't mind, he wouldn't mind emptying a full uh, five-cent beer on you. <laughs> my, referee, my referee jersey smelled like they mopped the... Uh, the barroom floor with it on some of those nights. Kerry, <laughs> <laughs> touching on what you uh, just said before, I always go by the uh, motto, if, if they didn't know I did the game, I did a good job. But I'd like to like to touch on the hiring process in the NHL and how, you, if you know anything about it now and how it's changing, you think it'll affect uh, programs like, you know, USA Hockey or the uh, official development program and things like that. What are you trying to break in? Well, you know, it's a good point, Woody. Um, first of all, on your first on your first statement, there's certainly uh, it's been said, and I've said it, that uh, if they don't uh, recognize you, don't notice you, you can sneak in, sneak out. You've done a good Maybe job. Maybe not for a guy like you, though. <laughs> well, you know, the problem is uh, there are times when you have to step up, and you've got to lay it all on the line. And you're, oh, you're sure. as a referee. I believe you are the first line of defense before anything has to happen with a suspension. The referee is the first line of defense for player safety. You know, we now have NHL Department of Player Safety. How many times have we seen recently, in recent years, certainly after I've left the ice, where there's been no penalty called and it's been a major infraction? I mean, clearly something major happened and no call. Uh, with two guys on the ice that are directly responsible for it and four guys, a major infraction, that can make the call. Uh, and ultimately, there's a suspension that results from it. That's really disturbing to me. And it comes to that question of how are they recruiting? How are they developing? You have to coach people. Uh, you know, at, at the uh, USA hockey level uh, or Paul Stewart's uh, ECAC, uh, there has to be supervision uh, that really understands what the objective is, and you have to coach each uh, official differently. Uh, no differently than a hockey team uh, has players, uh, and the coaches are, you know, you have a, a whole bunch of coaches on a team now. You've got the head coach. You've got uh, a power play specialist coach. You've got a defensive guy. You've got a video guy. Uh, and in breaking down tape and footage, uh, you know, you really need to have uh, an attitude uh, that's productive, positive, uh, that can sit down and dissect the individual's uh, strengths and their weaknesses and sort of counsel them in the right direction, especially given the fact that there are so many young officials coming in. Now to the recruiting issue. What the NHL and Stephen Wacom uh, have decided is that they're looking for former players that have played uh, to the uh, 
perhaps American League level. Uh, there may be even some guys that, uh, yeah, well, some of the guys had a cup of coffee at the NHL or uh, maybe uh, played in Europe. You know, there's a Russian right now on staff that played in the KHL. Uh, he's still working American Hockey League games. He's been over here for four years at least, I believe, uh, and he hasn't gotten it yet. And, you know, that may not be his fault. He may understand the game. I'm sure he does as a player. He can skate. Uh, and they're recruiting guys that look good more than guys that uh, have an aptitude for the job. I think you have to learn on the job. Uh, you have to be taught and coached at every turn uh, to be successful. And I, I've got to tell you guys, I think that I certainly had an aptitude for the job. I fell into it. Uh, I played to the junior A level in Ontario. I wasn't drafted. I had no aspiration to become a referee, but I didn't want to accept the many U.S. Uh, Division I hockey scholarships I was offered, and I really wasn't looking at getting beaten up in the American Hockey League or the, the IHL at that time. Uh, I knew I'd be a journeyman, so I went to a referee school so kind of on a, well, let's give it a shot, and uh, I was scouted at that school. It was in 1972. Uh, the year that the World Hockey was formed, an opportunity was created. I was scouted uh, by uh, Frank Udvary, who was the assistant director of officiating. Uh, two days later, I was invited to the NHL training camp. I spent 10 days at the camp. They put me in the American Hockey League. I did exhibition games that year, uh, NHL exhibition games, a couple of them. Uh, and the next year, I was signed to a contract as a referee. So I sort of fell out of the sky, and it was... It was a, a look. We didn't have the kind of coaching and supervision that they get today. You were sort of sent out and sink or swim sort of thing. I learned very, very quickly that if I was going to be successful, and I'm an analytical sort of mind, I would go back uh, to my hotel room and I would replay the game. I was 19, 20 years old. I was working in the minor pro leagues, and there were several, well, most of the players were older than I was. And, uh, I would dissect my game. Uh, even if the game went well, I would think, is there something I could have done better? And I was blatantly honest with my performance. It wasn't about the things I did well. It was about the things that I needed to do better. And in that blatant honesty that I could look in the mirror and say, okay, this could have been better. How am I going to achieve that? I've written in my book a pretty big controversy I had uh, with Wayne Gretzky and one of the first games I, I refereed him uh, as a rookie in the NHL. Well, uh, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, <laughs> it was in the North End Coliseum. It was, it was probably in the first couple of weeks that I was in the NHL. And uh, Wayne was obviously God in the Northlands. He he played the year before. He got into the NHL one year ahead of me, 79-80. I came in in 80. The very first shift, uh, a guy touched him, and he, he jumped in the air, took a dive. And his head was turned to look at me to see if my arm was up before he hit the ice. <laughs> we didn't have a diving penalty back then. And my little man syndrome, my chip on the shoulder, the way I played, uh, you know, not being intimidated, uh, the crowd got on me very quickly. And the stubbornness that I had was going to, I was going to teach Wayne Gretzky a lesson. There was no way that I was going to be uh, embarrassed, nor would I call a penalty that uh, when the guy was diving on. So the game was the Philadelphia Flyers that were playing, and towards the end of the game, and Wayne really didn't get a call all night. 
I, I have to shamelessly admit. And uh, <laughs> a minute and change left. Uh, the Oilers were down one goal to the Philadelphia Flyers. Ellie Lindbergh caught the puck. I killed the play. Wayne was standing in his office behind the net with nobody around him. He jumped in the air, threw his arms out one way, his feet went the other way, and he did a belly flop on the ice. Bobby Clark skated over to him with no teeth and said, Get up, Gretzky, you blank baby. <laughs> I went over to Wayne and I said, Wayne, what are you doing? I said, there wasn't a guy within 15 feet of you. He said, you wouldn't have called it anyway. He said, you haven't called a blank thing that night. I said, you're right. I'm going to start right now. you got two for unsportsmanlike conduct. He oh. said, thanks. It's about bleeping time you called something, and he stormed off the ice. <laughs> well, I went over to Glenn Sather and I said, Slats, you got to put a guy in the penalty box. Wayne must have an equipment problem because he's gone to the dressing room. In, in <laughs> back in the hotel room that night, in reflection, it hit me like a board between the eyes. I compromised my integrity. I compromised the rules. I compromised the what I was there for, the game I loved, and my employer. I allowed myself to get drawn into a battle emotionally with a player, not just a player, but the greatest player probably of all time, of arguably. All time. Uh, I realized that it was my deficiencies, my little man syndrome, my chip on the shoulder, my, my fight versus flight kind of response that I had been conditioned to from the time I was a little guy with a father that was a former pro player. He was a goon in the uh, IHL. He was a boxer. I played three years of AAA midget for him. I played a lot bigger than I was. And I had this attitude that I had to change because while it served me well as a player, a little player, it was going to absolutely cause me to fail as a referee. The guy that was supposed to be part of the solution, and I was becoming part of the problem. So lesson. that was lesson number one. And I'll tell you, it was a major lesson, transformation in, in my elevation. I started to work at developing relationships with players. I walk fast, talk fast. Uh, it's just my type A personality. And I had to, I had to control the emotional uh, content within me. I would be like a thermometer, and I'd feel the emotion rise if I was in a debate with a player. It could be a heated debate. He could be cursing at me. My automatic response would be to fight back. I had to hold that back. And as my emotions, and I could feel it, and I could hear it in my voice, as it started to rise, I only allowed it to get to my throat. Once it got there, I wasn't going to let it come out. I took a breath. I relaxed my shoulders. I put my palms open, open palms, which is a sign of peace. And I'd say, I'd like to talk to you, but we're going to have to calm down. Let me explain why I did or didn't do whatever. I found that it worked. It was about developing relationships through open dialogue, through being approachable, through not trying to be a hard ass and always, you know, be the boss, the, the ref in charge. There was a, there was a smarter way to do it. I had to use some psychology because every player and every coach, uh, you had to treat a little differently. Uh, and I learned that uh, along the way, uh, fortunately, sooner than later. Adam, you taking notes? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, uh, you know, people don't realize what goes on behind the scenes as a referee. You know, after a game sitting in the hotel room, you're, you're 
you're, you're working with your partners, you're all in one room and you're discussing the game and it goes on to, you know, two, three in the morning, it could, you know, over some beers and you just talk about the game and what happened. And, you know, it brings me to my next point. Like it, it kind of discourages younger kids when they get yelled at and, you know, affects the, the sh- well, what we have now is a shortage of referees, what it seems like, um, you know, from parents and spectators, you know, discouraging younger kids that aren't, uh, you know, completely capable of handling the type of uh, criticisms that we, we take on a, you know, a daily basis. So I don't know, Carrie, if you have any thoughts on that, uh, you know, like on every rink you walk into in the States, it's a USA hockey, it's a friendly environment, it's just a game, you know, uh, you know, any thoughts on that with the parents and the spectators uh, on younger kids? Well, for sure, Adam. Uh, you know, I think the the uh, USA uh, officials have to be better equipped uh, how to handle it, especially the, the young kids coming in. I mean, like you say, who wants to take abuse when you're, you know, you're maybe a, a 15 to 18-year-old uh, youngster, uh, you're new at officiating, you, know, you haven't had a lot of experience, uh, and you've got to put up with some adult that's berating you, whether it's coach behind the bench, putting on the armor, the equipment that you need to have and be equipped is the ability to bring down the temperature, uh, which is what I attempted to do on the ice. You have to be the calm uh, force, but it's it's not something uh, that uh, young referees are automatically going to have. They're going to be defensive in some cases. They're going to be timid in others. They're going to be fearful. Uh, they're going to often just say, this isn't worth it, and they're going to quit, uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, enrollment for officials is down. Uh, I think, you know, USA Hockey and, and all levels of hockey uh, are trying to do a good job uh, by getting, and, and coaches, uh, getting the parents uh, to sign contracts, to have a meeting at the start of the season, uh, make an agreement that, uh, you know, the, the coach is the one that is in charge of the players, not the parent. There's a there's a certain appropriate way to cheer for your kids. Uh, but how many times have we seen fights break out in the stands between parents? And I'm talking. <laughs> I had to I had to break some up when my grandkids were playing and they were playing pee wee hockey. I mean it's absurd. <laughs> so the the best way uh, to to do it is by the officials going to through the various levels. But even in that, there has to be proper coaching. There have to be people, there have to be guest speakers, I think, that are brought in that are high-level guys, Paul Stewart, myself, guys that have been there, done that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the best coaching from us either. I think that, uh, you know, there has to be a cerebral approach uh, to officiating. And no differently than I learned very quickly in my confrontation with Wayne Gretzky, uh, that the officials and the younger guys have to have to be honest in their self-evaluation. Uh, they have to try and be the best they can be. They have to be professional, and it's not just about making fifty or a hundred or whatever they get paid, depending on the level that they're working and do four or five games on a on a Saturday and just don't care. Uh, Got to care about the game, and you you definitely have to want to give the best that you can give to the game it's about coaching the players too now quite often the role of the referee people look at it and they say well he's out there to control the game call penalties uh screw up the game in some cases they think uh but my my objective 
was to try and keep players out of the penalty box, not put them in it. And in my final game in Montreal in 2010, just towards the very end of that season, Jacques Demers, uh, or I'm sorry, Jacques Martin, was coaching the Montreal Canadiens at the time. Before I went into my dressing room uh, to get ready for the game, he came over to me. We had a private conversation outside my uh, dressing room door. He wanted to thank me uh, for the uh, great career I had and what I had given to the game. And guys, this, this will always stick with me. One thing he said at the end was, the thing I noticed about you, Kerry, is that you tried to keep the players on the ice. If you gave them a penalty, I've often seen you standing with the penalty box door open, explaining to them what they could have done differently and not taken a penalty in that situation. I've asked awesome. my players, they told me. So the, in, in youth hockey and such, if you can develop a relationship with a coach, the first thing I would do is I'd skate over, I'd introduce myself to him, and I would set the table. I would say, Coach, how do you do? My name's Kerry Fraser. I'm going to give you the very best I've got today. If you have a question, if there's anything that you feel you'd like to ask me, I'm approachable. But I'm going to have to ask you to do it politely. We're going to get it done quickly, and we're going to move on from it. Whether you agree or you disagree, I'm here for you. I'm here to keep your players safe. I want everybody to have fun. Let's work together. Those are the kinds of things that in the, in the initial, not even a confrontational situation, but just in the setup of, of things, you can do something as a referee to disarm any hostility that might come your way. I mean, Kerry, it's a pretty, you know, great lesson. I think it's a human lesson. And personally, I'm, I, I hear some of the things that I'm internally working through myself. <laughs> so I can relate. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? Here's, here's another one for you, boys. There's been games when I've been absolutely brutal. I mean, cool. starting out, I remember I had a game at Salt Lake in the, in the Central Pro League. And... Uh, Charlie Simmer was a rookie. Uh, he was, you know, became a member of the Triple Crown line in L.A. Terry Murray was a defenseman, rookie defenseman, uh, and uh, he went on to, to play in Philadelphia and coach the Flyers and, and the, uh, the Kings. And this, I was like 21 years old, and I, I had two games there with a day off in between. My first game, I was brutal. Absolutely stunk the joint out, and I just couldn't recover from it. I ended up giving Charlie Simmer, and we often laughed about it. I gave him a 10-minute misconduct. He said it's the only 10-minute misconduct they ever got in his whole career. And uh, well, now I've got, a, I've got a day in between games, and I had to stew about how bad I was the night before. And I'm just a rookie. Like, it can crush you if you care. It, it, you care about the game and your performance, and, and I'm just feeling so down. And I had to pick myself up by the bootstraps, and I had to go in for that next game. The very first thing I did when I walked into the Salt Lake uh, Golden Palace or whatever it was, beautiful building, uh, I went to the uh, Salt Lake Eagles uh, dressing room, and I knocked on the door and asked to speak with their coach, uh, Jack Tex Evans. Big time, big, tough guy, played for the Chicago Blackhawks. He was a scary-looking guy and uh, <laughs> big square jaw on him. And uh, <laughs> I put my it. hand out. I said, I said, Mr. Evans, I said, I've got to apologize for my performance uh, the night before last. I said it was deplorable. And I said, I just want you to know that I'm going to give you the very best I've got of me tonight. Got to be better. I will be better. And I just want to apologize. He said, 
son, it was like a father, you know, epiphany moment. He said, son, we've all had bad games. He said, you let it go and you move on. And I know you're going to be great tonight. And it was a real, you know, it was, it was, now I wasn't told to go talk to him. I just felt I had to do it. It was, it was the right thing to do. And I didn't want to pick up when I dropped the puck from where I left off in the previous game. I wanted to set the table. I wanted to get it, get it out there. Now, having said that, having had him and told him I'm going to be better, I damn well had to be better, right? <laughs> yeah. As is life. Well, there was a game I had. Uh, one of the, the best teams I ever saw, guys, was the New York Islanders when they won four cups in a row. They were yeah. awesome. To win, to win one Stanley Cup is really difficult. To win two, <laughs> tough. Four, imagine, four Stanley Cups in a row. Incredible feat. And the... Uh, discipline that that team had aside from you know they had some really great players and they could play any way you wanted they played tough they had you know bossy that could score they had Trottier they you know you name it they had pot van on the D uh, so Johnny Tonelli down the list Bobby Nye but the discipline that that team had was incredible Al Arbor was the reason for it Al Arbor behind the bench the coach I had tremendous respect for and he controlled his players more than any coach I, I saw uh, during that, that period of the game. And I had them, uh, this disciplined team in uh, Chicago in the old stadium one afternoon. It was an afternoon game. I didn't show up. I wasn't awake yet when I, when I dropped the puck. I had this disciplined <laughs> New York Islander team three men short within like four minutes of the, of the opening faceoff. Al Arbor, after the, the, uh, the third penalty, was standing in the doorway with his hands on his hips and I'm waiting for the face off and he yelled at me, Carrie, get over here. Well, I skated over like a little kid, had my head down. I knew I was sucking. I said, yes, Al. He said, what the hell are you doing out here? I said, I don't know, Al. I said, I'm really struggling. I, I looked up at him. He had his lips pressed together and he was thinking and his hands on his hips and he said, well, get out there and try harder. I said, okay, Al, and away I went. I was a little kid. Gary, that's a, a perfect story, a perfect segue into my next question. You know, we haven't really discussed this. You, you've refed 13 NHL Stanley Cup finals, which is, I don't know, super cool to say the least. <laughs> my question for you, the first question is, you know, what was your most memorable Stanley Cup final? Well, you know, I at the Flyers fantasy camp, uh, I was sitting uh, on on the dais with uh, Bill Barber and Keith Jones, and uh, one of the questions from from the uh, the group at the dinner that night was what it was like to win the Stanley Cup. And Bill had his Stanley Cup rings on; he had a couple of them, and and he talked about how tough it was to win. Uh, when the microphone came to me, I said, "Well, guys, I've never won a Stanley Cup." but I've been accused of losing 13 of them. <laughs> <laughs> All 13 of them. i got to tell you, the, the first time uh, you work a Stanley Cup final, it's incredible. Things have to line up. I was the youngest referee in history to have been selected to referee a Stanley Cup final. My run in the playoffs, Adam, if you can get this, uh, my first year selected to the playoffs, I did one round. The next year, I did two rounds. The next year, I did the Stanley Cup finals. Uh, it was a pretty quick ascent, and 
everything lined up. I, I just I got on a roll. Uh, I was uh, getting respect and and developed credibility. The uh, I was put in all the tough games and I I succeeded in them. Um, and it was it was through that that learn uh, self evaluation, uh, develop relationships, get players to play on your terms without having to lay the hammer down. Uh, all those things that uh, develop respect and credibility uh, in your game. And that very first final, uh, you know, you're standing there and uh, my uh, opening face-off was Mark Messier of the Edmonton Oilers uh, with Dave Poole and captain of the Philadelphia Flyers in the Philadelphia Spectrum. Wow. That was in uh, 1985. No big deal. And it, it was, you know, I, I, I guess I was so new at it that it didn't really dawn on me the, the magnitude of where I was and what was happening. I, I approached it like another playoff game. Um, I remember working with John D'Amico and Grace Campanello, two future Hall of Fame uh, linesmen. And uh, John, John D'Amico was kind of miffed when he said, well, kid, are you, you like, you're really nervous? And John was a guy that, you know, he used to get all upset and nervous about games, you know, a day or two before they happened. He was, he was really an intense guy. And I, I said, well, John, I'm, I'm really trying to stay calm and I'm trying to approach this like a, like just a, a normal playoff game. And he looked at me like I had two heads. He said, normal playoff game. He said, this is Stanley Cup Finals, you stupid ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cool I, you I had some neat experiences uh, to talk about, you know, Gary? Well, you know, the, the one uh, Ray Bork won the Stanley Cup in Game yeah. 7, uh, and uh, yeah, that was in Colorado. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, that was, that was a surreal experience. I, I went uh, to the rink, uh, the Pepsi uh, Arena in Colorado, the morning of Game 7. I was first one at the rink. The other guys uh, that I was working with didn't want to go for a skate. And I like to go to the rink. I like to get my skates on. I like to touch the ice. I like to feel energy and let it start to build. Uh, 200 by 85 is sheet of ice is my office. At that point, there was really nothing that I hadn't seen before. It, it becomes instinct. And you move around your office just freely and, and as the play sort of dictates. Uh, it's muscle memory. So I was there. There were no lights on. I put my skates on. I went out in the dark. I skated in the crisp air uh, all by myself, and it felt so good, so cool. And I just thought, you know, tonight is a big night. This is it. This is the end. It's game seven, and I've done them before. Uh, but somehow in this city, it just feels a little different. It feels a little more special. Uh, when I came out of the rink with my sweatsuit on, it was like walking into the twilight zone. There were all kinds of, of uh, television trucks uh, in the parking lot. It was quiet. There was an anticipation uh, around the city that, you know, the Avalanche and especially Ray Borg were going to win tonight. And being on the ice, it was a great game. Played the New Jersey Devils. The fact that uh, Joe Sackick received the Stanley Cup and then immediately passed it to Raymond Bork was a classy move and here i was sitting 15 feet from it uh, <laughs> on the penalty bench watching this thing and just soaking it all in now Kerry, this this might be a stupid question but did the referees get uh, their names engraved on you know the the games that are being put on there or no 
just the teams? No, not at all. It's only the teams, the teams uh, members. Uh, they have a, a certain number, a quota that they can put on it. Now, what does happen when, when you retire? The league gives anybody that's worked the Stanley Cup final, they give you a miniature Stanley Cup, uh, silver Stanley Cup, which is beautiful, and they put on the rings uh, the uh, the games in the year uh, that you uh, refereed uh, a final. Uh, so I have that on display uh, along with uh, some of my other uh, memorabilia. You have to add a couple new shelves on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just happy that I was able to fit it into the, uh, the 1,800-square-foot apartment. <laughs> we uh, cannot ask you about the uh, infamous call with Dougie Gilmore and Wayne Kretzky, and uh, that's kind of probably haunted you a little bit since that happened. Want to talk a little bit about well, it? Well, you know, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, we do miss things. Uh, I mean, it's it's the human element, and uh, if there's one call that uh, I wish I had the ability to have back, <laughs> if there was one that I, I could have seen, that's it. You never, as I mentioned in the, at the outset of the show, you never want to have a negative impact on a game. That certainly did. There's no denying it. Uh, whether or not uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs would have won that game, we don't know. But we know one thing for sure. Wayne Gretzky wouldn't have scored the winning goal. He should not have been there at that point after he clipped Doug Gilmore. What's interesting on the play, though, guys, is I was blocked, didn't see it, blinked, whatever. It just happened so quickly. And it was uh, off a face-off. Uh, both players were still standing there, Gilmore and Gretzky. After Gretz won the face-off, initially shot the puck, and it rebounded off uh, a block shot by Jamie McCowan, a defenseman for Toronto, and it went right back to the face-off area. And it was at that point that there was what I sort of guessed, uh, if I had to make a guess, is that Wayne took a second shot. Uh, I saw a sweep. Uh, then I saw Gilmore fall, or not fall, but grab his chin. Play was stopped. And I went to Doug Gilmore. He had dabbed uh, blood on his chin. And I said, Killer, what happened? He said, now this is right from the guy that was cut. Doug Gilmore said, I quote, Wayne took a shot and his follow through caught me in the chin. Now I mm -hmm. said, Doug, that's not a penalty. That's the only exemption on the high stick rule, follow through of a shot. He said, okay, he accepted it. But something just didn't feel right. It didn't smell right. Typically, Wayne Gretzky was always there pleading his case. He was a guy that if there was any debate, as the captain and as the guy that was certainly involved, he was going to be there front and center pleading his case. In this instance, he wasn't. He just sort of skated away, slid off to the sidewall, gathered the two lines, Ron Finn and Kevin Collins, and I said, guys, help me out. What'd you see? Ron Finn was at the blue line on the same side as me. He was looking through the back of the players and especially Gretz. And he said, Kerry, I can't help you. I didn't see it. I was looking through their back. Kevin Collins had dropped the puck. He was in the vicinity and started to back away. And he got, I uh, got sort of a, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe, uh, if, uh, I don't, not sure. Well, Adam, you know that you're not going to make a major decision on that kind of uh, sort of information that, that isn't affirmative. So I had yep. to make the call and hope that it was, in fact, follow through of the shot. Well, history as it would be, uh, Gretzky uh, scored. Uh, they uh, And I had a, the Kings on a power play. 
I mean, uh, Glenn Anderson tried to run Rob Blake's through the head, head through the boards, and I gave him a boarding penalty, uh, you know, prior to this high sticking infraction uh, that was missed. So they were still on the power play, and three guys on the ice. They chased, uh, they chased uh, Luke Robitaille into the corner for the puck, and he won the battle and got the puck across to Gretzky and for an easy tap in, uh, and that was the end of that game. Leaf fans uh, certainly went ballistic. To this day, some of them still blame me for costing them what they feel was uh, the Stanley Cup. They felt that uh, rematch with the Montreal Canadiens uh, that they would have uh, beaten Montreal, but it wasn't meant to be. And uh, certainly, uh, it's part of history. I had a, a hand in it from a negative aspect and perspective, uh, but uh, there's nothing we can do about it uh, once the the call is missed or the uh, call is made. So if you had a dollar for every time somebody asked that question, you'd be a rich man. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, <laughs> people, are, right. people have been, well, they've been forgiving. And, uh, you know, I, I was at the Stahl Foundation. Uh, every year I, I go and help them out. Uh, we do the Pro-Am. Bobby Orr comes in and a lot of great, uh, great legendary players and, uh, in their hometown of Thunder Bay. And uh, we have fun at the banquet, raise some money for, for the kids' uh, hospital in, in Thunder Bay that the Stahl brothers uh, – and family uh, support. And uh, I thought it would be cool if, uh, because I, I'm always chided, there's a lot of Leaf fans there, and every year I go there, they, they kind of bust my stones about this uh, this call. So I thought, <laughs> I'm going to get Doug Gilmore, and I'm going to FaceTime him, and we're going to put it on a big screen, and I'm going to surprise all these people at the banquet. So I called Killer as I was I was out in the golf course. Killer. I said, "Hey, you available? Would you do this?" He said, "Absolutely. Let's have some fun." So we rang him up, had him on the big screen, and I I said, uh, "And we're face to face." And I said, "Hey, Doug, it's your friend Kerry Fraser." He he's got this scowl on his face. He said, "Fraser, it's been 25 years." He said, you, "You've called me every year. I've changed my phone number 25 times. When are you going to give it up?" <laughs> well, the place just burst out in laughter. We had a lot of fun with it. Uh, Doug Gilmore is uh, is a uh, really incredible guy. You know, uh, he never ever, and we had years after that uh, until he retired. He never threw it in my face. Never brought it up. He accepted that mistakes are made. He's made them. We all make them, and he he was able to let it go. Yeah, that that's a pretty funny story. It is uh, inked in history, but uh, you know, hey, refs are part of the game and they make errors. Um, Carrie, you've probably obviously seen the movie Slapshot. How is that, um, you know, imaged of the old school hockey back in the day when you first started in those, you know, lower levels of hockey? Is it kind of the same or a little dramatic or exaggerated? I guess. Well, interestingly, I refereed each of those guys, the Hanson brothers. <laughs> I refereed them as rookie players when they started out in pro. Uh, and I've done tours with them. Uh, we <laughs> we go out and raise money, and uh, they're they're great guys. But I got to tell you, it was war. That was, you know, <laughs> a little bit of a takeoff. It was slapstick. But I've had bench clearing balls. I've had I've had players attack me throw down their gloves and come to fight me. Uh, I've had a player uh, spit in my mouth when I was in an oh. argument with him. Oh. Uh, disgusting, absolutely. Yeah. One of the most <laughs> sickening things I ever experienced. Uh, it just unbelievable kind of stuff that, 
you know, I've had benches clear two, three times in a game. Uh, they fought for 25 minutes at a time. People don't realize, and, and I and I kind of chuckle when I see uh, today when there might be two or three fights going at one time on the rare occasion that that happens. And the big news is that they call it a brawl, this big brawl. <laughs> it, it's like nothing. It's, it's nothing compared to the way it was. And, you know, fortunately... It has gotten better, and we are moving forward because the bad news is that we know a lot more about hits to the head today uh, than medically than we did back when I started uh, and when guys wore no helmets. I got one more question, Gary, and it's you know kind of similar here. Uh, were you refing when Marty McSorley two-handed that guy across the face? No, I didn't have that. That was Donald Brashear that he hit. Brashear, uh, as a yep, matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I, I had Marty McSorley's game. I had many games when, when Marty, uh, right back to when he started with the Pittsburgh Penguins, um, he was a really a tough farm boy and uh, some big, big-time fights and battles. Uh, but one of the uh, most, I guess, uh, important calls I had to make against Marty McSorley was in that same 1993 season in the Stanley Cup final. And it was uh, when he was the LA Kings game two, we're up by a goal. And uh, Jacques Demers, coaching the Montreal Canadiens, uh, requested a stick measurement of Marty's stick. Uh, the Kings had won the first game and 3-1, uh, I believe, and we're up one nothing in this game. or up by one goal. And we're going potentially home with a two-goal advantage. Jacques knew that they'd never recover. The Canadians wouldn't recover from it. So with a minute and 30-some seconds left, he uh, requested a stick measure of Marty McSorley's curvature of his stick. I, uh, B. Carboneau and uh, Kirk Muller uh, skated up to me and said, Jacques wants to measure Marty's uh, stick curve. So I skated over. I said, Marty, I need your stick, please. I've got to measure it. The blood drained from his face. I looked at it. <laughs> It was so obviously uh, illegal just by the <laughs> naked eye. Adam will know that, you know, back then it was a quarter inch, not much. Yeah. Uh, just, just by naked eye, I could tell. And I said, Marty, what are you thinking? And <laughs> I measured the stick. It was illegal. They, uh, Marty went in the penalty box. They, uh, Jacques Demers pulled Patrick Roy for an extra attacker, so they went two-man advantage. Scored on the uh, on the power play, tied it up, and uh, then came out and scored the winner. Um, it was uh, defenseman uh, first defenseman to score a hat trick uh, in a Stanley Cup final, and uh, the Kings never won another game. Uh, Wayne Gretzky said it was the most bitter defeat that he ever suffered <laughs> at that game too with Good the coaching uh, illegal stick. Well, you know what? I'm I'm going to see Marty uh, on the 17th. I'm uh, I'm going to Mark Messier's foundation golf event. Uh, we sponsor a par three hole with our golf business, uh, and uh, I'll see Marty and uh, Mess there, and some of the other uh, guys that won the the cup with the Rangers, uh, Adam Graves and Mike Richter, and guys like that. So uh, feel free to get the some of these Blue Line Hockey Club members into some of your events here. Don't don't be shy about it. Well, you know what I'm <laughs> I got good to do. Well, when Marty comes through our par three sponsor hole, I'm going to have a stick gauge and I'm going to measure his club. 
Oh man. Good idea. <laughs> well, uh, one last fast. question. <laughs> one last question here, and we'll let you roll. We uh, really enjoyed this interview tonight. With yeah, uh, Adam Wood with us tonight. He's a friend of the Blue Line, and we had him on because uh, he's such such a great ref. And what kind of advice would you have for him to get to the next level, to get out of the AHL and, and get into an NHL referee jersey? How old are you, Adam? I uh, don't want to know. <laughs> uh, I'm 35. <laughs> okay, well, you know that that you know you're yeah. at sort of the the dark side of of uh, what they're looking for. But that doesn't mean Very that young. you're not a good. Well, yeah, and I, and I, you know, when I was, I was told I was a young sixty as well. I left the ice like 50, 58 uh, in the NHL. Just because other people don't give you an opportunity, that doesn't mean that you don't have an awful lot to contribute. My my advice for you is to enjoy the game, every game that you work. You know, when I my dad would tape and watch every game. I, I did, and and uh, he would say to me, "Boy, you look like you're really having fun out there." And then there were other times when you know things would bog down. Uh, maybe there was uh, personal situations or or other things that that sort of weigh you down, and you'd carry it to your workplace, and he'd say, "What's going on? Like you're not smiling, you're not happy." And he could pick that out on the odd occasion when I didn't have a happy face. So when you enjoy what you do and you love it. And you're happy with it, uh, you know. You'll 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 never work a day in your life. I remember having a, uh, a run-in uh, with Michelle Bergeron. I had another very famous uh, call, a disallowed goal in uh, 1987 in the Battle of Quebec, Montreal, and uh, Canadians Quebec Nordiques. It was in Game Five, and uh, it was right towards the end of the game. They were tied, and there was a play where Alain Cote. Uh, was carrying the puck down the wall. He cut to the center, and uh, a player for the Nordiques dragged Brian Hayward out of the net. Eight, uh, it was goalie interference back before we even had goalie interference. And I'm I'm standing on the goal line, and I see this happening. I see it develop, and I'm saying, please don't shoot the puck. Don't shoot the puck. Because I knew that I was dead. I was dead. I could be dead right. I had to do what I knew was the right thing to do, if that puck entered the net, it had to be a disallowed goal. That's exactly what happened. While the Nordiques were celebrating and everybody's up on the bench and Michelle Bergeron is celebrating, I'm waving the playoff. Um, it was a gutsy, ballsy call. Um, they were stunned. They were, and, and similar to the Wayne Gretzky missed high stack here, well, this one was the right call, but nonetheless, as soon as the puck was dropped for the next faceoff, the Nordique players were still in shock. Carbonell won the faceoff. He got it over to Muller, to Ryan Walter down the wing. He shot the winning goal in, and all hell broke loose. I had to fight my way off the ice. Carrie, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. would you, so, you would know, you say? I mean, these are obviously very memorable moments in your life, but you seem to be able to describe them in great detail still. Do you have a, a videographic memory, or is there just that? <laughs> yes, I do. Into your brain? No, absolutely. Okay. I absolutely do. Uh, I can. I can. No, Rob, you can do the same things we did. I, I yeah. Well, I, we I, can I, talk about a play, and absolutely, I, I can recall it uh, vividly and and see it and replay it. And that's part of you know when I talked about going back to the hotel room after a game and and replaying that game. 
you know, when I first started, um, I was a. Sl- I, I found that uh, in my very first year, my first month, I was starting slow. I wasn't, you know, how you have to get that first penalty at him, and I was sometimes wow. missing that first first penalty, and I felt that it was in my pregame preparation. So I'm in the Central Professional League. I'm. Uh, I woke up from my sleep. I didn't close my open my eyes yet, and I visualized back. I'm talking 1973. This is when visualization was. I think only the Russians might have been doing it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it was Russian collusion. <laughs> <laughs> so I laid there with my eyes closed, and I visually saw the two teams that were going to play that night. I saw the color of their jerseys. I saw their faces. And I went through every penalty in the book that we would call. And I saw myself seeing the infraction. I'd raise my arm. I'd then send the guy to the penalty box. I'd see non-calls that I thought were good non-calls. Play on. So now I go to the rink. The national anthem is being sung. And I've seen now the faces of the players in the jerseys in the, in the warm-up. Uh, they come onto the ice prior to the national anthem. I did exactly the same thing. As I'm saying a prayer, and I'm looking, and eyes closed, and I'm calling each penalty, hooking, charging, tripping. I'm giving the signal. So by the time I dropped the puck, I was well prepared because I'd already called every penalty that you could possibly call. I'd already <laughs> seen them. I saw them in my sleep, and I saw them while I was awake. And it was a quick start. When it happened, boom, I was ready. Well, it's been great listening to your stories. It's uh, It's been an honor to talk to you tonight, Kerry. And we all appreciate you taking time out of your your life to uh, reminisce on some of the old times and fill us in on, you know, one of the greatest referees to ever to ref a game. So we appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for coming yeah, on with us Thank you so tonight. much. Yeah. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, uh, Adam, one last parting uh, bit of advice. Give back all you can. Because the more you give, the more you get. Well, I appreciate it. We should all take that into consideration. But, uh, yeah, go ahead, Adam. (laughs) Well, I'm going to go tell my wife. (laughs) 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 They are are practicing for their first, Gary. (laughs) Oh, it's game time now. There's no more practice. Okay. (laughs) Just just keep practicing. (laughs) All right, Gary, take care. Thank you so, so much. much. Yes. Thanks so much. It's an honor. My pleasure. Bye, man. Bye for See you later. Well, guys, great interview with Kerry Fraser. I think that's uh, the first time we've interviewed somebody that could go into such detail on everything that he's done in his career and remember every player's name, where the puck was going through across the ice. Um, I mean, that was just amazing just to hear his stories and to see the details that he still remembers. From repping those games, I mean, I can't remember shit. You know, can't can't remember hardly anything from the playing no. game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, that was, I, uh, the guy he talked. Oh, go ahead, Rob. I'm just gonna say, I mean, I I still got goosebumps from that. It's, that was a, a very, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna forget this experience right here. So no, it's I found myself sitting here thinking to myself, how the hell are we talking to this guy right now? Right. You know what I mean, us four, you know, us four or five guys sitting here right now. I mean, I never in my life I could have expected talking to a guy that knows <clears throat> I mean, he's rattling off players, you know, that we grew up idolizing, you know, and it's just, it's weird. It's weird. It's cool. It's, it's awesome. So it's uh it was, it was really a, uh, really a cool experience 
to talk to, to talk to a guy like that. That was that was great. Yeah, episode twenty four. Yeah, pretty lucky. Episode twenty four is a, a special one for sure. Yeah, pretty lucky oh, yeah. to have uh, uh, Carrie and uh, the guy we kept talking about, Paul Stewart. You know, two of the same guys. Paul played in the NHL, and uh, now he's my assigner. He repped in the NHL after he played, so he spent at least uh, two decades in the NHL and he has the same memory, the same kind of stories, you know, and it's, you know, we take it for granted cause we, it's, you know, Stewie stories, but they're awesome. You know, you, you just don't forget it. The guys he talks about, you know, he's sending Lemieux off the ice. Lemieux says, they're not here to watch you. And he boots him off the ice, you know, stuff like that. You're just like, Jesus Christ. Like that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, he had front row seats to 13 playoffs finals you know, with the entire path, you know, to get through the playoffs just to those finals. So, I mean, there's so much. I, I'm sure he only told us a, a fraction of the memories and the stories that he truly has. So what a what an honor. I I'm certainly feel blessed right now. A lot of good advice from for Woody tonight from, from Frazier. That was uh, definitely something that you'll probably remember for a while. Maybe take some of those uh, pointers and put them into your reffing career. Yeah, absolutely. Except I, I don't think I can get younger. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. Hey, hey, plug in, buddy. In all aspects like, of your life, right now. Like you said, he didn't. Uh, he didn't finish refing until he was 58 years old. So, looks like you got a lot more yeah. refing to do, buddy. Plenty of time. Yeah, sounds good. Well, fellas, that was uh, something special and probably one of our our best podcasts so far. And Woody, we really appreciate sure. you, appreciate you coming on tonight, being part of our referee episode. And, uh, you know, we'll get back out at this next Wednesday. So stay tuned to Blue Line Hockey Club podcast. Check us out on Facebook or bluelinehockeyclub.com. And also retweet all our tweets on Twitter. And until next week, folks, keep your stick on the ice. Hey, I appreciate it, boys. Thanks. Keep your head up. We know. Burpee. Asia. All right, that's cool. We're out. <laughs>